Welcome to Lung Cancer Concert, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org in the newsroom. We are your hosts, Dr. Narjus Flores and Dr. Stephen Liu. Hello, and welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the official podcast of the IASLC. I'm Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. And this is Dr. Narjus Flores, Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. In this episode of Lung Cancer Considered, we will discuss some of the major data on early stage no small cell lung cancer and other thoracic tumors from the 2023 ESMO meeting in Madrid, Spain. Join us to discuss this data with Dr. Jarushka Naidu, a consultant medical oncologist at Belmont Hospital Dublin and a professor with the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. She's also the chair of the ISLC Communications Committee. Jarushka, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Nargist, and thanks, Stephen. A pleasure to be here. Well, we, we saw a wealth of data at this meeting, I think unrivaled, the most I think I'd ever seen uh, in terms of relevant practice-changing data for, for lung cancer. Let's start with some of the perioperative data presented at ESMO, the first abstract in the first presidential session at ESMO 2023, presented by our colleague, Dr. Tina Cascone, that outlined the Checkmate 77T trial. Uh, Drushka, could you review that study for the listeners? Absolutely. And what a privilege to see a, a colleague presenting such important data. So just to recap, Checkmate 770T is a phase three neoadjuvant study. So building on the cadre of studies we're seeing in the setting. And this time in this study, um, the investigators evaluated the role of neoadjuvant nivolumab plus chemotherapy, followed by adjuvant nivolumab. And uh, this study had 461 patients. And uh, importantly, some nuances of the study design, we see that patients were randomized one-to-one to Nevo chemo four cycles versus chemo alone, investigators' choice chemotherapy, so maybe a little bit different compared to some other studies that we're seeing. Patients then had surgery six weeks later and then could, see, could receive Nevo for a year on the investigation alarm or placebo for a year. And uh, the primary endpoint of the study was event-free survival, and we saw some subgroup analyses by stage and PDL1 status. So overall, this study met its primary endpoint with a median overall, a median event-free survival, excuse me, of uh, 0.58 hazard ratio, highly statistically significant, 0.00025. And we saw a, uh, a similar benefit uh, by stage, but really driven by stage three. So the event-free survival hazard ratio is 0.51 and for stage two, 0.81. And similarly, um, a split by pdl one status, uh, the pdl one positive subgroup has a ratio for EFS benefit of 0.52 and 0.73 in the pdl one negatives. And then of course, the uh, response endpoint that's been studied broadly across these neoadjuvant studies is the achievement of either pathologic complete response or a major pathologic response, which is defined as less than 10% of viable tumor cells. And here we saw that the addition of nivolumab improved pathologic complete response with a PCR of 25.3% versus just 4.7% for chemotherapy. And similarly, for major pathologic response, 35.4% 
uh, patients who received NEVO achieved this level of major pathologic response complete compared to 12.1% with chemotherapy. And this EFS benefit was still seen in patients who did not go on to adjuvant therapy. So really some very important data and uh, building on the number of phase three studies that we are seeing in this early stage resectable space. Jarushka, as we mentioned, as you mentioned, there are similar studies and other studies in this space. What were your first impressions of this data as the first Astra during the first presidential session at ESMO? Well, my first impressions were very important study building on Checkmate 816, a slightly smaller phase three study compared to some of the other phase three studies we've seen, a GN over a thousand patients, um, but really consistent data with what we're seeing in the neoadjuvant setting. Um, some pros, some areas for consideration. Pros, this is a consistent signal for event-free survival, consistent that the stage three patients appear to be driving the benefit, consistent that the pdl one positive group appear to be driving the benefit. The questions that remain, what does the adjuvant therapy add? This study, like others, doesn't quite answer that question, but I was impressed by the additional data that was included in the presentation here. We saw the difference in event-free survival by those who received adjuvant or no adjuvant. We saw a breakdown of the toxicity by the different stages in the patient journey. And then importantly, we saw that 78% of patients underwent surgery in the Nevo arm. So still a very important proportion of patients not making it to surgery. So really reinforcing to me that there is going to be a group that are going to end up going straight to surgery or are best served by surgery first. And really the, the next stages are going to have to tease out who these groups are and who benefits from this the most. Yeah, I agree. A really rich data set. Every slide had some really useful information that we, we need to reflect on. And you know, that difference in pd one positive and negative, it's not saying that we won't sort of offer this type of treatment to the pd one negative. It's just that there really does seem to be a different biology there. And, you know, eventually I think that we'll, we'll be using that to guide different strategies. But uh, a really impressive way to kick off ESMO 2023. Uh, we also saw in the same session uh, our colleague, Dr. Jonathan Spicer, provide an update on the now approved perioperative regimen of Keynote 671 that approved in the US October 16th, 2023. Uh, we know this is a large randomized phase three trial, almost 800 patients with resectable, you know, stage two, stage three, non-small cell lung cancer. And just like 77T, this is four cycles of neoadjuvant chemotherapy, not the three cycles we saw with Checkmate 816. Um, this was then followed by, you know, surgery and then pembrolizumab or placebo, for up to 13 cycles, so not the full year, a slight, slightly shorter course there. We'd previously seen that adding pembrolizumab led to an improvement in pathologic complete response, 18.1% versus 4%, and EFS benefit, hazard ratio 0.58, impressive outcomes. The update here is overall survival, and we saw an overall survival benefit. The hazard ratio for death, 0.72. The four-year survival rate, 67 0.1% versus 51.5%. So the overall survival data from this perioperative regimen. Jerushka, were you impressed by these data? Yes, I was. Um, I, I was very privileged to, to be able to serve as the discussant in the se section. And I do think, you know, if we think about how regulatory approvals work across the world, 
um, and what is clinically meaningful to our patients, overall survival still remains a gold standard endpoint. And to meet an overall survival endpoint for a new treatment approach in the early stage setting is very clinically meaningful and is going to be something that is important in terms of approvals and what gets to patients. So yes, I was impressed. And I think these data are incredibly important. Um, I think maybe a little bit of pro and con here. Um, contrast this with Checkmate 77T. I do think the the specification for cisplatin only in the study design um, should, should ring a couple of bells and give us pause. That's a bit different to the other phase three studies in which it was either investigator's choice chemotherapy or even some of the pioneering Nadim studies from the Spanish group, which sort of ushered in this approach using carboplatin as, as the backbone. I think the ideal chemotherapy regimen in the neoadjuvant setting not really known. And we do understand that some proportion of our, our patients who are a little bit older may not necessarily be cisplatin candidates. This approach might be somewhat limiting. And if we're going to follow the rule book and, and, and go by the study design, I think that's something to keep in mind. The pathologic complete response I think very, you know, very sort of similar to what we saw from the primary New England uh, publication, a little bit less than what we're seeing with other um, neoadjuvant regimens. But overall, I was impressed by these data and certainly feel they are reaffirming of, of current practice and, and practice changing in some jurisdictions. Interested to hear what you both think. Yeah, I think the the platinum question is is an important one, and it's not just sort of direct application and you know whether payers or regulatory authorities will will have that kind of detail, uh, but it's also the type of patient that enrolls in the trial and really cisplatin ineligible or patients not appropriate for that regimen wouldn't be included in that, and so it does change the patient population a little bit in ways that are difficult to see on on paper. Um, but we now have several regimens and. You know, we're seeing similar trends in a lot of these studies. There are important differences, but if we look at Keno 671, Checkmate 77T, Aegean, uh, similar regimens, various checkpoint inhibitors. L let me turn it to Narjust, actually. Narjust, are, are there differences between these, these regimens and these outcomes in your eyes? Well, I, I think besides the comment of the drug, I think something that is stick to me at the beginning when we were seeing these regimens is that the number of cycles. I think at the beginning, we Nadine, when the study, I call this, I call this um, perioperative regimens sandwich approach. That's how I explain it to my patients. Like we give you therapy, then surgery, and then followed by surgery. With Nadine, we had three cycles, but I think it has settled that four cycles in the new adjuvant setting is potentially where we're going to go. And the adjuvant setting, you know, the duration of that therapy, I think a year is where we have found that would be the median. I think what, for me, more than difference between the regimens is the questions that come now with these patients that have a complete pathological response and should they get adjuvant therapy if you have a complete pathological response, I think that can be something hard to sell. We know the combination of chemotherapy and immunotherapy is set in this space and is now approved in the United States, and we'll continue, we will continue to see more approvals and more people feeling more comfortable. Um, I think those are my thoughts, mostly about the chemotherapy and what happens after the patients that had a complete pathological response. Should, you, should they get more therapy? Yeah, I think at this point, you know, while there are important differences in the regimens and there may be some differences in the indications and labels, I think that the drugs are more similar than different. And 
And I think that our, our main focus is on these bigger questions, like when do we need that adjuvant therapy? Does it add more toxicity? Does it add more cost? And is it really providing any benefit to balance that? And, you know, we're seeing the original study, um, Checkmate 816, sort of mature, and it's kind of giving us some important pieces of, of information. We're kind of gathering more of a story. Uh, Jerushka at ESMO 2023, Dr. Mariana Provencio presented some updated subset data from Checkmate 816. What, what were your thoughts on those data? Yeah, I think, again, 816 small but rich data set and and certainly giving us more information regarding the the importance of pdl1 so just to recap dr provencio gave us a presentation of event free survival now by pdl1 status and what he demonstrated is that again consistent with 770 and other data sets it appears that pdl1 matters um, those patients who achieve a pathologic complete response if their primary tumor is pdl1 positive greater than 1%, their pathologic complete response rate is 32.6%. And that is a stark contrast with the PDL1 negative population, where only 16.7% achieve a pathologic complete response. And difference here in event free survival hazard ratio is 0.46 with PDL1 positive group and 0.87 for the PDL1 negative. However, he also gave us some, some overall survival uh, data here, which is interesting. Three-year overall survival data, 85% for the PDL1 positives, 71% for the PDL1 negatives. So I think very similar to what you were saying before, Stephen, that the the benefit is being driven by the PDL1 positives, but the PDL1 negatives still do benefit. It's just not as impressive a benefit. So really, you know, similar to what we see in the metastatic setting, just that feeling of something extra might need to be done for the PDL1 negatives, and that the PDL1 positives who achieve a pathologic complete response overall seem to be the ones who do best. Jerushka, and I have a follow-up question when you know, we know that PDL1 has limitations as a marker that has been shown in many other studies in the metastatic setting. Will the PDL1 preclude you for offering these perioperative combination therapies to patients? Yeah, well, I think that's a very important point. And certainly now, now practicing in Europe, the uh, the approval for H16 is is based on the PDL1 status. So this becomes critical for the ability to deploy these types of strategies in a practical sense in the clinic. These practical issues of do we have tissue? Can we obtain enough for PDL1? What order of biomarker testing do we do? How do we make sure that we get the relevant biomarkers done with the tissue that we have in time to make an appropriate treatment selection? And so far, really, PDL1, EGFR, and ALK critical and send, send us down different pathways in terms of whether we do surgery first, whether we do systemic therapy first and guide the entire conversation. So certainly in Europe, it is critical. Frankly, I don't see that changing. Um, I think in, in other regulatory jurisdictions that appears to be a little bit broader, but I do think it's going to be important and it's going to guide our discussions with patients. I think that's very important. And what I have learned as we're using PDL one we were using PDL one in the adjuvant setting is that sometimes you may have discrepancies between the PDL one and the biopsy from the surgical specimen. In this case, you know, we're talking about neoadjuvant. So I think, you know, assuring that all targets and all testing is done prior to surgery remains very important. As we continue the conversation, my colleague, Dr. Mark Awad, also give us the long-awaited update on the third arm of Checkmate A16. 
looking at neoadjuvant nivolumab plus ipilimumab, we know chemotherapy. We saw 70% of patients with nivo-ep underwent surgery compared to 76% in the arm with chemotherapy, with 80% ART0 resection versus 71% with the chemo arm. Event-free survival favored the nivo-ep arm with a hazard ratio of 0.77 and a three-year event-free survival rate of 56% versus 44%. Complete pathology response rates were 20.4% versus 4.6%, so NEVO-EP versus chemotherapy. Major pathologic uh, response was 28.3% versus 14.8%. Overall survival trend, 0.73, not yet a statistical significant, and a four-gene inflammatory signature shows an association with event-free survival and complete pathology response. Jerushka, what was your impression about this data and also about this four-gene inflammatory signature as we're trying to find better biomarkers in this patient population? Thanks, Nargist. Yeah, I thought these were very provocative data. Uh, again, in, in the same lung oral session, very privileged to be able to take a deep dive into them as part of the discussion. So first of all, nevo-ipi. So this was one, just one dose of ipi and three doses of NEVO, and it yielded a pathologic complete response. Proportionally, I know not power the same, not, not the same number of patients, but still more than Keynote 671. Um, only a bit. I, don't, I know we shouldn't compare directly, but I think this is something to that we should be aware of, that there, there might be a group of patients that do benefit from this approach. And again, an overall survival trend 0.73, not significant, but enough to tell us that there is something here and that there may be a population of patients that benefits from this approach. Um, one thing which we, we didn't yet get to touch on, but uh, was notable, was in those first couple of months of treatment, there is a crossing of the curves, very similar to Checkmates uh, 227. Um, so for those first couple of months, it appears that chemotherapy does better than epinevo and really that that benefit takes a while to come to fruition. And this is very important in the neoadjuvant setting when we're trying to get patients to surgery. And what we saw was that a, a larger proportion of patients had disease progression that precluded surgery in those treated with epinevo as opposed to 816 or 671. So really, in order for this to move forward, I think we need to understand which population appears to benefit in order to use it appropriately if it is indeed appropriate uh, for these patients. And I suppose moving forward to the question about the 4-gene inflammatory signature, so again, this is a, a similar signature that appeared to associate with benefit from Nevo Chemo in 816. Three-year data presented at the ELCC earlier this year demonstrated this. Importantly, this is a four-gene RNA-seq signature. So requires a very tight turnaround time, tissue to be preserved in a, in a very specific way. I think the practicality of delivering an RNA-based approach in the clinic at scale is, is going to be tricky. So I think interesting, something that we need to follow up on and understand a bit better. But again, a signature for epinevo like in 227 remains elusive. And I think more work in that space needs to be done. I, I was really impressed by the path CR rate as well. Single dose of epi and 
you know, while there are different safety profiles, it, it actually seemed, you know, at least numbers wise, that, that the regimen was, was fairly safe as well. Uh, and so, Jerushka, we, we find ourselves in a bit of a bind. Uh, you know, in the U.S., if, you know, we now have both regimens approved, Checkmate 816 and Keynote 671. Three cycles neoadjuvant and done, or four cycles neoadjuvant and then 13 cycles afterwards. In the U.S. or if, or if in Ireland, if they were both available, how would you recommend choosing between these different approaches? And, you know, would you use things like PDL one uh, or, or EGFR to change your choice? Yeah, that's a tough call. And in some ways, um, I'm I'm a little bit fortunate in the sense that 816 is, is the only option that is approved by the EMA so far. But I think if in theory, both are available to me, I see the pros and cons of both. Truthfully, while 671 has demonstrated the a statistically significant overall survival benefit, I think the trend for overall survival is looking similar across all these perioperative studies. And 816, I think it's only matter a matter of time till we see that come through, some alpha being recycled in order to show this. Um, I, I think really the the question of who benefits from adjuvant is remains to be answered. So I do understand folks who want to give 671 upfront, give themselves the option to give adjuvant just in case this is a group who might benefit from that. However, that is quite a commitment in terms of time toxicity, financial toxicity, and questionable benefit. Um, so to be honest, controversial, but uh, at the moment, I would probably pick 816. Um, but I do see the pros and cons of either approach. I think PDL one expression does matter, but actually it doesn't change my approach. It would just change my conversation with the patient. That is interesting. Yeah. Wow. Um, what about EGFR? You know, we think of EGFR as a subset that doesn't really derive benefit from IO. And while the numbers were small in Keynote 671, the hazard ratio for, for OS looked good in that subset. What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think, you know, we, we don't know enough about these patients, but so far, um, the the data overwhelmingly showing that immunotherapy doesn't help these patients. And with Adora and, and other approaches that have, have recently been presented and published for the EGFR mutation subset, certainly I would be moving along a primary surgery and post-op osimertinib approach. Yeah. Narjust, uh, you know, here we are in the U.S., Checkmate 816, Keynote 671 approved. What's your practice look like today if you saw someone potentially eligible in clinic this week? I think at this time we have auctions. These two trials offer auctions. We know in Keynote 671, since planning was mandatory, right? So that may point to some selection bias in some patients. And also these patients that may have a large burden of disease, you think they may benefit more from the adjuvant the adjuvant part of Kino 671 that is approved right now uh, in the United States. So I think it's very patient in, independent. It's good to have a conversation too, because these patients will be committed to more time in the hospital when they have to get adjuvant therapy for a year. And there is also a mental aspect that we need to talk about committing patients to long therapy in the adjuvant setting. And it's understanding that there is no cancer to be measured, nor cancer to be seen. And the CT scan. So I have a few patients and they only get an adjuvant immunotherapy. And I can say that, you know, it, it, it tends to be a different conversation compared to patients with metastatic disease. We have to adjust our conversations, talk to our patients' needs and our patients' healthcare beliefs, because 
at the beginning it's all hands on deck, but when the surgery has been done, there is no evidence of disease, there's a conversation as, do I really need to keep getting this therapy? Very different than Pacific in which, you know, you radiated and get chemotherapy, but you still may be able to see some disease in the scans. So very good conversation, good balance, and using more geriatric assessment for these patients, because it will help me understand not only about before surgery, but post-surgical recovery. And I'm working a lot with our surgeons to make sure that we have clear communication before and afterwards when it comes with follow-up. And about the EJFR question, Stephen, um, you and I have discussed this and we have talked about it. I don't, I don't, fo- well, the data is not that I don't fully believe that EJFR patients should go on this approach. Uh, the institution, we have the new ADORA trial, which gives me the opportunity to enroll these patients in a new adjuvant targeted directed therapy. I have seen patients that were tested for EJFR after they got the chemoimmunotherapy regimen. They didn't have response, but it's only anecdotal. So I think we have to be very careful. And only with EJFR, also we ALK patients, with patients with RET mutations, um, and other mutations that don't have in the metastatic setting historical response to immunotherapy. What are your thoughts, Stevens, about the mutation status and will you consider these regimens for EGFR, ALK, RET, for example? You know, I think I align with with you and Jerushka. I think that there are better options. I think the targeted uh, benefit there is, is clear. So I really would go more towards the targeted therapy direction, but you know, that OS hazard ratio 0.24 for EGFR. We saw a similar trend, I think 0.57 in the power 010 with Adjivinatezo. Uh, and I think I, I just point those out, not to advocate for immunotherapy. That's not what I would do. But I think that there are still questions uh, about sort of the early stage and responses and, and how best to serve our patients. So uh, simply just pointing that out for, for the need to, to continue studying and, you know, just to, to acknowledge that we don't know how everything works just yet. Uh, but it is good to have more options. And I think that all of, overall, we're, we're seeing our, our outcomes get better. Uh, you mentioned targeted therapy. I'll, I'll take this opportunity to, to sort of shift to uh, our colleague, Dr. Ben Solomon, who presented the randomized ALENA trial. As we know, this uh, phase three trial included patients with resected stage two, three non-small cell lung cancer with an ALK fusion. And patients here were randomized to get adjuvant chemotherapy or electinib. So a little different from the ADORA trial and the duration of treatment with electinib was two years, not three primary endpoint, disease-free survival. And we saw this was an overwhelmingly positive trial. The outcomes strongly favoring electinib with a disease-free survival hazard ratio 0.24. The three-year DFS rates 88% um, versus 53. That's three years. So that's a year after stopping the electinib. Our DFS rate 88% versus 53% in the control arm uh, and, and in the setting where, you know, ostensibly we felt patients were cured Clearly, we're not curing as many people as we thought. The CNS recurrence, um, uh, you know, CNS disease-free survival, 0.22. The three-year CNS DFS rate, 95.5% versus 79.7%. And we know it sort of reaffirms that the brain is a very important site to monitor. The most common site of recurrence in both arms was the brain. So uh, another situation where we need to start incorporating MRI as part of our surveillance, that really is an important part of monitoring disease. I'll also mention, you know, we, we normally find ourselves on the other side critiquing the study, but, you know, I think we have to take the the good as well and point out that this was excellent study conduct. You know, if we look at the 38 patients in the control arm, the chemotherapy arm, um, who received any subsequent systemic therapy, 37 
got a TKI. And 35 uh, out of those 38 were either electinib, brigadinib, or, or lorlatinib. And so we, we aim for, you know, pretty close to 100%. We don't want to test, you know, early versus, you know, never. We want to test sort of early versus late. And really, I think they, they did a great job with this. Now, clearly, there are adverse events. And I'll encourage everyone to, to take a look at that. They're, they're not small, the numbers with electinib. Um, but mostly they're laboratory abnormalities, CPK elevation, AST and LT elevation, constipation, important one. Uh, but this was a, a very positive trial. It received a rousing round of applause that went on for several minutes. Narjust, would you consider electinib in the post-op space your new standard of care? Yes. So I have the privilege of having many patients. We ALK positive, no small cell lung cancer. We know this patient had zero to very little tobacco history, very limited comorbidities. The number one, unfortunately, competing uh, disease for their survival is this cancer. Uh, equal rates, you know, women and men, maybe slightly more common in men. But when these patients have disease progression after surgery, it's just, it's a trophic disease to the brain. And their progression tends to affect significant our patient's quality of life survival. So we has a ratio of 0.24. Knowing that this, you know, will decrease the rate of recurrence in the CNS. Also knowing that we have experience with the drug, we can manage the adverse events. And I do have to be honest, I do like it as two years compared to other adjuvant targeted therapy. Because the three years sometimes can be very challenging for patients financially, emotionally, and physically. So the two years. But, you know, chemotherapy versus electinib also gives options for younger patients that tend to have the ALK mutation. So to have other options like fertility preservation, lower risk of second malignancies by avoiding that chemotherapy because these patients will live a long time if you don't have recurrence. So I do believe it has a space. Um, something surprising about ARC positive and osmosis and lung cancer, despite having a very low frequency of prevalence in our patients, one to two percent, we still see a lot of advancement in, in this space. So yes, the answer is yes, it's most likely I will use it. But we have good discussions with my patients about what entitles. Not only seeing us one second, this is what we're gonna do, but how it's gonna look in a year. How is it going to look if we don't do it? Um, and understand this drug and in the adjuvant setting, I think it would be very important outside of the clinical trial patient that tends to be more fit, that tends to be more um, motivated to remain in the therapy for two years. Yeah, it's a very positive study, a great option here. It makes sense. We could have predicted, I think, this benefit knowing what we saw in Adora. Um, but you know, a lot of conversation about the study design here. This Unlike Adora, it wasn't chemotherapy, then osimertinib versus placebo. In Alina, it was chemotherapy versus electinib. So, you know, Jerushka, what's the role of chemotherapy here? Can you comment on, on that design feature? Yeah, I think it's interesting and sort of a second question almost that's embedded in the study, um, but not necessarily answering that question. I think if we draw parallels with Adora, we see that you know the it, it's sort of buried fairly deep in the supplementary data, but in the Adora New England paper, the patients who received chemotherapy do appear to derive an incremental benefit, and really there does appear to be added benefit when somebody when a patient who is eligible gets chemotherapy followed by TKI. 
And we do know that chemotherapy works in patients who have um, alcohol-arranged dance more cell lung cancer, pemetrexid-based chemotherapy in particular. So I suppose my thinking on it is I wouldn't want to leave something active on the table. And if this is a patient that I thought is going to benefit from chemotherapy followed by electinib, I might, I might consider doing that. Having said that, this study gives me a reassurance that if this is not a chemotherapy candidate, I'm not doing them a disservice by going straight to the TKI. Now we're going to move to small cell lung cancer and something that we have seen, I think, in uh, ASCO 2023, ISLC, is that we're small cell lung cancer is also coming to the forefront. And we saw Sonodata data about Tarlatamab. And I think I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, we're learning these new compounds. Jarushka, can you walk us through that update? Absolutely, yeah. So Tarlatamab is a very interesting compound. It's um, a DLL3 and uh, a CD3 bite by specific T-cell engager. And uh, this study, again, uh, uh, contributing to the embarrassment of riches at uh, ESMO, another concurrent New England Journal publication, for a phase two study comparing 100 milligrams with 10 milligrams uh, dosing of tarlatamab and an expansion with decreased inpatient monitoring. So, so a relatively small study, uh, 91 patients with 10 milligrams, 70 patients with 100 milligrams, but really uh, interesting data, important data, and obviously a dearth of options um, in the post-chemo-IO space. Uh, and here what we saw was an objective response rate of 40%, a time to response at 1.4 months, and that 59% of responses had a response duration of six months or more. So in those patients who respond, the opportunity to have a durable response, median progression-free survival of 3.9 months, median overall survival of 14.3 months. But then, of course, um, you know, linked to the mode of action of these uh, agents, uh, cytokine release syndrome, an important toxicity that we see in nearly half of patients getting the smaller dose of 10 milligrams, 61% of patients at 100 milligrams, but the possibility to have reduced inpatient monitoring. Um, only one case of low-grade cytokine release syndrome, uh, but still something that is going to require largely inpatient therapy. So I think very interesting data, very interesting compound, wonderful to see activity for an agent in the setting. The ability to apply it and deploy it in the real world setting, I think will be challenging in terms of how it's given and the specific toxicities that we see with it. Interested to hear what you both, both think. So I think something that's very interesting is that the story of many things can reopen again. In DDL3, the story has hasn't ended yet. We continue to study. We just improve in how, you know, we develop compounds and how we learn. And I agree with you, Jerushka. I think the cytokine release syndrome uh, is something that is new for us, right? But three years ago, we were not talking about neoadjuvant as much as we are now and as comfortable as we are. Um, Stephen, your thoughts are so important here about the potential role of Tarlatamab in this setting, and will this compete with your current second line uh, in the United States? Oh, absolutely. I think these are extremely exciting data, and really, I think this is the, a better way to attack it. I'd love to see this kind of strategy where we're engaging more T cells in fighting cancer. Uh, really, in, in all of our tumors, you know, we see very good response rates for a heavily pretreated population, and the durability is really what's lacking with our other treatments. These are durable responses. We don't have a median yet. The majority uh, of 
response is still ongoing at six months. That's not something we see with chemotherapy. But but there are a lot of questions. You know, this is a, a, a much more resource-intense regimen. And I think the inpatient administration does limit scalability, does limit applicability. There are going to be a lot of access issues with that. There were some important things here, though, that part three of this study, you know, also kudos for doing this study, really showing that lower dose. You're not losing efficacy, and, and it's so much better tolerated, sort of the, the, the better safety here. So really, a, a hats off to a, the Project Optimus approach here. But that part three, where you're using the lower dose of 10 milligrams with a reduced inpatient monitoring, the concern, at least the concern I had, was that if we reduce the inpatient monitoring, all those grade one, two CRSs will shift over to a grade three, which is real trouble. And we didn't see it. You still see the same grade one, two CRS, but maybe it's not this natural progression to grade three and grade four if you don't interrupt it. Maybe there's something a little different. And you know, while this needs a lot of study and dedicated trials to explore this question, I think it now opens the door to, you know, could this someday be an outpatient regimen? And and if this is an outpatient regimen, I think the access really increases. You know, if this is a Q2 week infusion in the hospital, um, I think it's really hard to to apply that everywhere. I mean, Jerushka, if if this required hospitalization frequently, indefinitely, I, I got to feel that limits its use in a lot of places in the world, right? Absolutely. I think we would have uh, major capacity issues. And, uh, you know, I, speaking for my own institution, I'm sure many of the institutions that our listeners come from would 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 have that. But I think you're right. Kudos to the authors for, for thinking about that and for adapting that into their study design. And hopefully this still has its place. But as you said, Nargist, its its role is likely to evolve, but we can evolve with it hopefully in time. The durability here is so impressive to me and, you know, obviously to others as well, because we have several other uh, bites and trites in this space that are approaching, uh, you know, sort of similar landmarks. We saw some of these updated at ESMO as well from from Harpoon. We saw the BI compound uh, at World Lung. We know that Roche has a compound. So some interesting drugs here. Uh, so so watch this space, but but really exciting data presented wasn't the only thing in, in small cell. Uh, you know, our colleague, Dr. Afshin Dalati from Case Western presented some data on an antibody drug conjugate in small cell. You know, we had previously seen some B7H3 ADCs. Here we saw preliminary results from the small cell cohort of Tropics 03. It was one of those basket studies that did have an arm for small cell, a 40 patient arm. And this was looking at sasituzumab govotecan, another trope 2 antibody drug conjugate. Response rate here, 37%. The median duration of response, 6.3 months. And again, 63% of responses ongoing in six months. There are toxicities with sastuzumab govotecan. Uh, we see diarrhea as a fairly common, unfortunately, low grade. And you do see neutropenia, which can be high grade as well. But if we look at adverse events that led to discontinuation, zero. Um, so I think that speaks to some degree of tolerability. Jerushka, are we going to see ADCs play more of a role in this disease? Well, you know, you're the small cell guru, so I defer to you. But uh, looking at looking at these data, I think they're provocative. You know, ADCs have a, a growing and evolving space across solid tumors. So, you know, many of uh, practitioners in, in community settings and others who treat various different tumor types are going to have um, clinical experience with giving these agents. So 
why not in small cell? And here, the objective response rate, impressive at 37%. And similar to the tarlatumab, those patients who, who have a response, 63% of them remain in response at six months. So again, I think very exciting data phase two. So obviously, we, we need to keep an eye on things. Uh, but I think the, the applicability here in small cell, it would be great to see it. And, um, you know, I would say I'm, I'm excited about this as I'm excited about tarlatumab really um, impressive response data and toxicity data that I think will be surmountable with clinical experience. I think all the data is so exciting. We are learning, like we are biased, right? We're all thoracic oncologists, but I think it's extremely stimulating academically, giving more options to our patients. We are making this disease a treatable disease that had such a bad reputation. And I think it's just the effort of, many investigators, patients willing to go into trials, their families, and all coming together. Because just in one meeting, we have so much to learn and so many more options that when we go to clinic, we can talk about our patients. Uh, we are patients and their families. Lastly, we saw Dr. Claudia Proto present the relevant phase two study of carboplatin, plaquitaxel, and ramesuramab in untreated thymate carcinoma. In 35 patients, the response rate was 80%, and the disease control rate was 100%, with a median duration of response of 15.9 months, a median progression fee survival of 18.1 months, and a median overall survival of 43.8 months for a disease that, as someone that treats younger patients with thoracic malignancies, I myself, it is hard to treat. We have very limited data, and a lot of the data was it's quite all. So Jerushka, what impact do this data have for you for this rare tumor type? Yeah, I agree with you, Nargest. I was um, uh, really impressed by these data, uh, impressed by the presentation, very impressed by the discussion by Dr. Pilar Garrido. So yes, the addition of a anti-VEGF agent here to traditional chemotherapy does appear to improve the response rate. Importantly, the conduct of the study had to be amended. Originally, it was meant to be 52 patients, but because of the rarity of the disease, um, accrual took a long time, the impact of COVID. So I think the response rates here, we saw the investigator-assessed response rate maybe a little bit higher than the, the centrally-assessed response rate, but still very impressive data in a rare disease. I do think in diseases like this, the ability to do larger studies, phase three studies is, is limited and not necessarily needed when we are already seeing something as impressive as this um, with an agent that we already give in, in other settings. So I would think that, you know, this is something that that actually could make it into a guideline um, uh, with the current data, even though the numbers are small. So congratulations to the authors and, um, you know, something that I would definitely consider if I saw a patient with untreated thymic carcinoma tomorrow? I think I have several patients, uh, um, probably the most, uh, my group, because of the age group in some of these patients. And I I do think that these patients, a lot of them are tend to be younger, they can't tolerate the regimen, but eventually, you know, you run out of options. I hope that we continue, that this will open the door for more research and thymic neoplasias as a whole. And, you know, we're learning from small cells, small cells moving to the front front. I think thymic malignancies should probably follow after that. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you there, Najus. These were great data, and it's a hard this is a hard disease to study. There was a SWOG study looking at you know plus or minus RAM and really met with accrual challenges. And I think that study closed last year. So this is a, you know congratulations to the authors, an important question, and I think really impressive data. You know the, there were there's so many other studies that we could cover here, but we we are unfortunately we're out of time for this episode, so we're gonna have to cut this a little short. Uh, you know to close here, Darushka, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Congratulations for the wonderful discussion uh, on the presidential stage, for all the presentations there. Great ESMO, uh, really fabulous meeting. Thank you so much for, for taking the time with us today. Not at all. Great to to spend a Sunday evening with you guys and uh, to engage with the IASLC community on these truly important data. Congratulations to ESMO for an unbelievably impactful conference from a lung cancer perspective and what a privilege to be a part of it. And thanks to everyone for listening. You can download new episodes of Lung Cancer Considered. And we hope that you will tune in the first and third Tuesday of every month to give us a listen. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 